On September 8th, 2015, the first episode of Set Lusting Bruce was released. To celebrate our anniversary month, I plan to put out a new episode every day this month. If you're not part of our Patreon group, please think about supporting the podcast by making a small monthly donation. Everyone who joins gets a personal thank you card from me and a Set Lusting Bruce sticker. During this month, I'd love to get some new reviews on iTunes and other podcast players. If you haven't rated the podcast before, please go to wherever you get your podcast and leave a rating, hopefully five star, and let people know why you love the podcast. Hope you enjoy this month of episodes. And now on to the show. I had an awareness of that and greatest hits compilations were the best way to start that process. They were a great window into what you could explore to see a whole artist catalog. So that particular greatest hits had, it started with Born to Run and went right into Thunder Road. I'm going to guess that I had heard those songs on classic rock radio at a time, but definitely that was the first time I had really listened. And I fell in love with those two, certainly right away, but really with a lot of what was on there. And so I, right away, he jumped out to me in that moment as an amazing songwriter. Born to Run is just an amazing song. And I can even remember, again, I was probably 14 or 15, reading the liner notes of that Greatest Hits compilation where he had written, I think, something new for this release. And he said something to the effect that stuck with me of about Born to Run. He said, I was going for the title. This was my title shot. Like I put everything into the song. And that just really stuck with me. And I could... I felt like after I read that, I could hear that in the tune. I think the not only the songwriting, but the production, the way the band plays on that, it's, it truly is an all-time classic. And it's one of those ones where I, it bums me out a little because I think people heard it so much that they can't hear it anymore. But it truly is an epic production of a song. It's just great from front to back. everyone and welcome to a new episode of set lusting bruce your podcast all about bruce springsteen his music and mostly his fans i am your host jesse jackson uh we are getting off the bruce train though i'm sure he will come up as he always does um i'm talking to a musician to a fellow podcaster and someone i think is going to have we're going to have a good conversation rob welcome (laughs) to the podcast Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. And I just to be clear, I am a huge Springsteen fan as well. Oh, good. Then we will definitely talk a little Bruce. But let's start out with tell us about yourself. Yeah, my name is Rob. I host the weekly podcast called 1001 Album Complaints. And the premise is musicians and old friends get together and research and review classic albums from Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums, You Must Hear Before You Die. And so... We tell the story of the making of the record and we give a lot of musical commentary and analysis of the different songs, talk about what we like, what we don't like and why, and then ultimately vote and tell you at the end if you really have to hear this record before you die or not. Yeah, I love that premise. 
you guys have done a wide range. I did not see a Bruce one yet, so I'm going to invite myself onto your show <laughs> when you we, guys discuss Bruce. We did We did do one. We did Born in the USA as a oh. special July 4th episode, oh. I want to say last year. Okay, so, I did not see it on the feed, so I will have to look again. So, yeah. But he has several, I believe at least four records on the list, so he will yes. come up again, certainly. Very nice. So I'm going to get into the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about your own music, but I always like to start at the beginning, Rob. So talk about where did you grow up and was there a lot of music in the household when you were younger? Yeah, love to. So I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware on the East Coast, almost a suburb of Philadelphia and right across the river from New Jersey. So Bruce Springsteen looms large in that whole area. As you can imagine, I'm not from Jersey, but it's, it's so close that you meet a lot of people from Jersey and you hear about them a lot. My parents were big music fans, and so there was a lot of music playing. I would say that my father was more of a, a Beatles guy. That was his main band that he tried to turn me on to, and my mother was a little more Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix. So that was some of the stuff I grew up with. There were a variety of things playing in the house. They certainly liked Bruce. I heard songs like Hungry Heart, I recall, from a really early age, and Probably that got strummed on a guitar when I was a little kid by my dad or my dad's friend, something like that. So it was always, it was omnipresent. And then I feel like I took up the mantle of music fanship and took it probably farther than my parents ever did. But uh, it started at home. So it, it sounds like a big fans of classic rock. Did you go through a phase where you were rebelling against what they liked or... Did you just expand uh, on your listening? I reckon this makes me a little bit of a boring kid, but no, I'm, I'm a rule follower, Jesse. And so I never really rebelled against that. I took the parts I liked and I more or less embraced them. There was a, a short period when I was really young and I was just watching a lot of MTV, just buying whatever MTV would tell me to buy. So some of the first things I bought for myself were things like Motley Crue and Paul Abdul and... Nirvana's Nevermind, which clearly my parents weren't really into that stuff. But pretty soon after that, I was embracing the Beatles. I was embracing classic rock of all sorts and just diving deep. And I've always been a little bit of a backward looking music fan, even though I like music from all eras. So I would say the 70s is really my primary area of knowledge and likes in, in music. So... I've actually seen, if I have to generalize, two categories of guests. The ones that do just expand their knowledge and their listening, but never abandon their parents' music. They just, okay, this was cool. I like this. Now I'm going to add more to my plate, right? The others are the ones that do go through a rebellion phase that like, you know, I have no interest in that music. And then when they're 30, they go, Johnny Cash may be pretty cool. Maybe my dad had something in mind. <laughs> I think that's that's very cool. Um, I think it's it's probably important that the, the music's not really forced upon you. It was yeah. just there. It wasn't like, oh, you have to like this. And again, I wasn't a super rebellious kid. But one thing I glommed onto right away through Beatles and, and Bob Dylan in particular was songwriting. And so it wasn't long after that which led me to Bruce Springsteen. Because in my mind, and even when I first picked up a guitar when I was 15 or 16, 
what I wanted to be was a songwriter. And Bruce was a huge part of that inspiration. So two, that gives me two things to talk about. So one, let's start with first. You, you can remember when you realized, hey, I'd like to do that and start writing songs. I'm not sure I saw it as in my grasp right away. I think that it was okay. a period where I studied songs really intently, and in particular the lyrics of songs. Okay. And I would write or rewrite lyrics to Bob Dylan or David Bowie songs or Bruce Springsteen songs in my notebooks while the teacher was attempting to teach me something. It just, I got really into memorizing lyrics like that would, I'm not sure if I knew what I was doing at the time, but I was studying them intently and obsessing over them. Okay. And, but then you get to that age of about 15, and especially when you see your first band, high school band, like your contemporaries, people in a band, which happened to me right around the age of 15 or 16. And I was like, oh, I have, that has to be what I'm going to do. I have to join this tribe. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So can you remember, and I'm going to go back to your songwriting in a minute, but before I forget, can you remember when you mentioned Bruce was there a lot, but can you remember when and what about his music made you go, oh, wait, 
this is similar to the Beatles or Dylan that you said, hey, this is something a little bit different. It took a little bit of time, but yes, I can remember a couple inflection points. One was the movie Philadelphia came out when I was around 13, I want to say. Sure. And again, I'm from right near the city of Philadelphia. Bruce had a huge hit song on that soundtrack, as you'll recall. And I think that kind of just picked up a, he had an MTV video associated with that. It was getting radio play. So I think that just sparked maybe some new interest in his career, his back catalog. Because then, as I recall, the first Bruce Springsteen CD I went and bought myself was a greatest hits comp that came out within a couple of years of that. It's the one that's black and white with the red lettering of his name on it. He's got his back to the, it's just his back with a guitar with the Telecaster slung on there. Yeah. And I was at that period of my music listening where I wanted to dive into the classics. I had an awareness of that and greatest hits compilations were the best way to start that process. They were a great window into what you could explore to see a whole artist catalog. So that particular greatest hits had, it started with born to run and went right into thunder road. I'm going to guess that I had heard those songs on classic rock radio at a time, but definitely that was the first time I had really listened. And I fell in love with those two, certainly right away, but really with a lot of what was on there. And so I, right away, he jumped out to me in that moment as an amazing songwriter born to run is just an amazing song. And I can even remember, again, I was probably 14 or 15 reading the liner notes of that greatest hits compilation where he had written, I think something new for this release. And he said something to the effect that stuck with me of about born to run. He said, I was going for the title. This was my title shot. Like I put everything into the song and that just really stuck with me. And I could, I felt like after I read that, I could hear that in the tune. I think the, not only the songwriting, but the production, the way the band plays on that, it's, it truly is an all-time classic. And it's one of those ones where I, it bums me out a little because I think people heard it so much that they can't hear it anymore, but it truly is an epic production of a song. It's just great from front to back. It's, thank you for saying that as someone who, does a Springsteen podcast, I'm certainly not going to disagree with you. I remember something too, like he, he had the ambition. He wanted to make like an epic, like the best rock and roll single, right? Like he Mm -hmm. was trying to shoot for the fences. I had someone on earlier this year and she was saying that she's been to so many shows that she's, you know, she says, I don't need to hear Born to Run anymore. And I, if I had my choice, I'd have him take that out of the show and put a different song in. Mm-hmm. And I said, I hear you. I get it. I said, but think about the person who's never been to a Bruce show before. How are they going to feel if he doesn't play Born to Run? Absolutely. And she stopped and she said, I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> I will not do that again. And I had Mark has been on the show multiple times with me. He's from UK. And he says, I never stop staring at the band at a live show. I'm watching Bruce. I'm watching little Steven. I'm watching Niels. I'm watching Gary, then Max, always any of them till born to run comes on. And then I turn my back to the band and I just watch the crowd because of just seeing the joy of hitting that. It's a great point. And 
but makes me, I, I have thought of that aspect of being in a long running band before with hits and my friends and I often say Aerosmith has to play dream on every night, like it's the first time. So I think, well, here's what I would extrapolate from that, that we as fans, and this is a challenge, the band has to reinvent and pretend like they're playing born to run for the first time every night to put the energy and enthusiasm into it, to sell it, to give the people what they paid for the great experience, right? And to really do justice to a great song like that and many great songs. I think the audience also has a responsibility then. I think that's what you're saying, yeah. which is let the other stuff go. Let the fact that I get it. We hear these songs on the radio again and again, and you're over them in that context. But in the context of something like a live show, you got to go back to that beginner's mindset, that childlike wonder, and almost pretend you're hearing it for the first time. So yeah, I totally agree with that. I can't remember two stories that I love that are similar to this theme. Carl Wilson was being interviewed in of the Beach Boys, now past, but he was talking about, and I can't remember the song, but he was talking about he was tired of playing that song. He just was tired of doing it. Sure. And, and he said that one day for something happened and he saw the audience and he felt their joy and he felt rejuvenated and again and felt the energy of doing that. The other story I adore, and this is going to age me very strong, Rob. <laughs> Linda Ronstadt was on Johnny Carson. So there you go. <laughs> Two very, and she was talking that she had went and seen Frank Sinatra for the first time. And she said, I find myself going, I don't want to do Blue Bayou. I don't want to do Poor, Poor Fiddle for Me. I, I don't want to do these. I've done them too many times. And she goes, and I'm in the audience to see Frank Sinatra. And I'm naming all the hits. I'm like, I want him to do this. I want him to do this. I want him to do this. And she goes, and it hit me. That's my audience. My sure. audience wants to, the same way I want right. to hear Strangers of the Night, Chicago, they want to hear Blue Bayou. Uh, and yeah. she goes, and that, it told, gave me a totally different perspective. It's such an important revelation for anyone who's on the stage to remind themselves of what it's like to be in the audience. That's what you're talking about. I, I imagine the bigger and more successful you get, the harder the more removed from that you ultimately yeah. feel. But yeah, it's great to have those moments. I remember 60 Minutes was interviewing Bruce. I forgot after what album. It may have been The Rising. I'm, I'm not sure. But they had done a story on him. And they had talked about the set list that you just, it's so famous. You don't even have to spell it out. Just BTR, right? Sure. And And I thought that was a little bit because if you ever see a handwritten set list, there's often abbreviations on it, right? But yeah. Yeah. So they have little Steven and I think Gary and there or might've been Max. I don't remember, but anyways, a couple of the band members and he says, and you guys play it every night. And little Steven says, yep. And one day we're going to get it right. <laughs> and he's laughing and he goes, he looks, he goes, he thinks we're joking. <laughs> he says, so yeah, I, it is, I remember years ago 
when Keanu Reeves had that remake of the the day the world stood still or whatever that remake of a classic 50s film and I rented the original film and I went oh my goodness this isn't a good film for its time this is just a good film yeah the same way Casablanca or something and and you get where I think you said it perfectly you you get numb to the fact and you forget that first excitement of hearing that opening chords to Thunder Road. Or, and I'm going to be controversial here, the strumming in Hotel California, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I get it. That, that, that these classic rock overplayed. And you're like, oh, if I don't hear this another time, it's so overplayed. But then when you think about that and going, oh my goodness, what beauty. Totally. But listen, I also get it. I sympathize with artists who have those feelings. Yeah. Even as a bar band, when I was playing lots of shows in a bar band, an unsuccessful bar band back in the day, we would have these kinds of conversations amongst our band. To go, oh. haven't people heard this song enough? It's, what are you talking about? We barely even have fans. Can we just yeah. <laughs> play the best songs every night? It's not about what we feel. It's right. about what they feel. But I do sympathize. But maybe one more thing. I'm born to run specifically. And this is another thing that turned me over on to Bruce Springsteen early and often. Because I think Born to Run is also an encapsulation of his aesthetic. It really is a mission statement for him as a songwriter. It is it's hitting on his primary theme or themes. And so the fact that they also put a ton of work into that production and the songwriting, first the songwriting, then the production but that it also is representative of him. That's when all those stars align, that is, that just makes for greatness in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And I remember a couple of sports reporters were on the radio and they were, one of them said, yeah, born to runs the greatest rock and roll song of all times and the evidence says i think thunder road might have something to say about that and it was just hilarious that two songs from the same album get in that discussion yeah that's wonderful so i want to get back to your you're seeing your peers playing in high school bands sure and you like i want to be where the bands are let's throw in a springsteen rare yeah. how tell me a little bit about that journey rob so actually, I felt like I was behind the curve back then. Okay. When you start playing guitar at 16 and your friends started at 15, you feel hopelessly like you started way too late or something. I just remember a lot of that feeling at the time. Yeah, sure. And I had these friends, it's the same couple of the same guys I do the podcast with, 1001 Album Complaints Now, who were in a band in high school. And... I saw them start to gig around and play and I was just starting to play. So again, they just felt miles and miles ahead of me at the time. And I just knew immediately, A, I want to be best friends with these, these guys. B, I, this is where I need to go. But it took some time. I hung out with them. We talked about music even back then. We're still talking about it 25 years later. And, but it took me time actually to actually form a band. I feel like I was good enough. I think I had a little bit of a complex about it. So it took me a couple of years of playing in my room, trying to figure out how to sing, 
trying to figure out how to write to really form something up. So I didn't really form my first, I played with some guys in college and, and things like that. Some open mics, I had a little bit of stage and singing experience there, but it wasn't really until I graduated college that I got serious and, and put my first real band together. Do Bruce talks about that, that in his book and in a couple of documentaries, right? That rock and roll is the only job where you can still hang with your high school and college friends, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, where did you go to school? In Delaware, Wilmington, Delaware. And then I okay. went to University of Delaware for undergrad. Okay. And is that when you started performing, as you said, a bar band or kind of gigging with other people or was this did, just for fun? I did a few things in college, but honestly, I was really trying to find myself, find my voice. I think I knew at the time that I wanted to be the main force behind a band and thus I wanted to have songs to bring to the table yeah. and I wanted to be better at the instrument. And so that didn't really materialize apart from some open mics and a few one-off sets until after college, until I came to California, which I did right after college. And what led you to California? Just adventure. Just that Bruce Springsteen mentality of I'm from a small town and I know I need to get away from here and I don't really care where. Nice. So go through when did you start performing for people? What was it that led you to make that change? And okay, I am going to do this. Yeah, it was a really fun story. So I came out to San Francisco with a close college friend. And then over the next, I tried really hard through Craigslist and variety means and met a bunch of other musicians, tried a few false starts with getting a band together. But over the course of about two years, I had ended up convincing those same old friends from high school and college to move out there with us. And so they all arrived and we immediately said, we need to start a band right this instant. So that band became a band called The Chop. And we started playing a lot throughout San Francisco. We would tour up to Seattle and Portland, down to Santa Cruz and LA, out to Salt Lake City. We all had nine to five jobs, but we were taking it pretty seriously, writing songs and in competition with each other. But one of the reasons I think I felt empowered to do it was because we had really strong friendship as the foundation. And so it felt like that, like the most important thing was the hang. Yeah. That's a common thing you might hear from other musicians is that it's not, it's less about how good you are at your instrument. It's more about how you are to hang out with, because a lot of being in a band is hanging out at the bar before you play or driving in the van after you play. Being with my best friends in the world and going through that experience for a few years and being real relatively real serious about it. It was just an amazing time in, in our lives. There was, I've heard that in a couple ways. I talked to a dad who did little league coaching and he said, I pick parents, not kids. <laughs> <laughs> I figure I can get the kids up to where they're pretty good, but I can't change high pressured, crazy parents. And I've also heard a lot of interviews with showrunners and they'll talk about that um, I'm going to have to be working at 11 o'clock at night or midnight with this guy 
or gal, am I going to want to hang with them for this many hours doing that thing? Sure. And so there is that Neil Gaiman did a presentation years ago, but he did a commencement speech and they actually made a book about it, Make Good Art. And it's really stuck with me. He said, to be successful, you need to be talented, you need to be timely, and you need to be easy to work with. But the reality is you only get it two out of three. If you're really <laughs> talented and you deliver on time and you're an SOB, they will still hire you. If you're a really good guy and you are on time, they can depend on you, they'll take a little less art, right? Yep. And and if you are really nice and really talented, they will forgive you being late. And I said, there's a lot of truth to that statement. And the people that can be all three are the ones that you want to work with. Those are the people you want to have in your company, the ones you want to partner with, the ones you want to be creative with, whether it's a podcast or music or whatever you want, isn't it? Sure. And even at work, we call them rock stars. Yeah. That's, that's what that person is. Yeah. yeah. We do use that phrase, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And so my first band was definitely... I'll say lacking in the talent side, it was more about friends being together because it was a little bit of an experiment getting this band off the ground. I was a reasonably experienced guitar player, but I was new at being a singer. I was new at being a songwriter, new at being the front of a band. We had one other player, my co-host Phil from the podcast, who was a great guitar player. He'd been playing in bands for a long time. But the other guys, we had to push them into roles that they weren't necessarily comfortable with. So yeah. for instance, we had a bass player, a guy had been playing bass forever. He showed up last and the only role left was drummer. So we said, Hey man, you got to learn these drums. That's the, <laughs> sorry, dude. That's the only option. And he did it. He did an admirable job, but we got through a lot of those, that challenge by, yeah, like you said, being exciting, having fun, not only with each other, but showcasing that up on stage. Mm -hmm. And again, Bruce and the E street band were a big inspiration to just how a stage show should work this the level of enthusiasm and excitement behind it combined with a certain level of earnestness and sincerity to me that was my model for what a great live band was i always like to preface this the amount of times you've seen bruce perform live is not a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are but for the record have you gotten to see him perform live i've seen him twice okay I know I'm a little ashamed I haven't seen him more times no, because no, I, no, I do okay. feel like I'm a bigger fan than that implies. Yeah. But both times really left a huge imprint on me. So I saw him once in, I'm pretty sure it was 99 when he got the E Street Band back together. Sure. He played five nights in a row in Philadelphia, I remember. Sure. At, at the Spectrum, which was the old place where the Flyers played. And so I was like 18 or something. And I just, and I was, I got to take a beat in behind the stage. I remember this because, right. because of money yeah. and two things jumped out to me about that performance. One, it was a great high energy performance. Bruce played for whatever, three and a half hours. He was great. He was sweating profusely, but two things jumped out to me. One, he played to the back of the stage so much. I remember I got there and I'm like staring at the back of Max's head 
with my buddy and I'm wondering what this experience is going to be like, but I've accepted it. But the reality was Bruce was talking to the back. I feel like 50% of the time, which just felt astounding to me. And number two, I I just want to say number two, he blew my mind with how in control of the audience he was. It felt like that audience would have done anything for him. He was their spiritual leader. He was a sex god. He was everything wrapped into one thing. And people were at such rapt attention. And he just used that stage. He did the stagecraft thing so beautifully I just couldn't help but be extremely entranced myself. I I had heard other people talk about that, and mm-hmm. I ended up getting a ticket in Austin behind the stage. And a couple things, one that I really enjoyed seeing is if you're in the front, it's very clear when Bruce's guitar tech, Kevin, comes out and they switch guitars, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not as clear that little Steven and, and, and Niels and Susie are changing out guitars just as much, but sure. you don't see it as much. And yeah, they do make a point of playing to the back of the crowd. You already have the speakers of the big videos up, but yeah, they'll come and they'll be talking and laughing and, and playing to you. And it's just... It, a very masterful showman. Totally. What's that? Again, it's Bruce's perspective, which having followed him for a long time, I read his book. I read a lot of music memoirs, partially okay. for the podcast, partially just because I love them. And I have to say Bruce's Born to Run was probably hands down the best one I've ever read. Great songwriters don't always translate into being great writers. I and- thought in this case he nailed it. And to be fair, if I can try not to be heresy, sometimes in the past, Bruce was not the best interview. He seemed uncomfortable talking about himself. Now, I feel that after writing the book and doing Broadway, it feels like he's gotten better and more comfortable. Like when he did Letter to You, he was on this one-on-one with a guy on Apple, there was a podcast. I wish I could remember the musician, and it was fascinating. And then him and President Obama did a podcast. Sure. Yeah. So he's good. But yeah, I agree. And I I had a right after it was published, I asked a lot of writers that were on the show. I'm like, okay, forget being a fan. As a writer, what did you think of the book? And most people were like you. It just was really well done. He told good stories. He did. There were things like I would love to hear more stories about the night they did We Are the World, right? And But he covered firing the band. He covered his divorce. He bringing back the band. And he, the amount of discussion he had with his depression I thought yeah. was really important because not everyone to this day, a lot of people just say, just cheer up. And it's just not that easy, is it? Of course. Yeah. I think, yeah, you're hitting on some of the reasons I think it was really good. 
And although I'm not a writer, like I said, I do read a lot yeah. of these things, and I think it truly was uh, several cuts above. But part of it is that, yeah, he was willing to make himself vulnerable and make himself look bad. But he also wrote, a, there's a line to ride there, I find. Some people are willing yeah. to go way into the debauchery and talk about how much of a piece of crap they were. But this was more nuanced and more like a real human being talking to you. Combine that with a deep dive, a nuanced dive into the creative process, into just the logistics of being in these various size bands that he was in in his life, of getting his first recording contract, all this other stuff. It was just a fun read. It, it was just easy to read. And that is just not always the case when you're reading the details of some other person's life. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I agree. Are you still recording? Are you still working music? Do you still have your hand in it? Yes, sir. Yeah, it's transitioned into mostly a recording project of late. I released a record under the chop name, actually, a few months back. It is a kind of a 70s metal concept album about the fast food chain Arby's. It's a weird <laughs> That's project. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's called Ghost Beef. So I encourage you all to go check it out. It's made with a lot of lights. We take these silly concepts lately. What we've been trying to do is take these silly concepts and treat them with a certain dead seriousness because we really love the process of writing songs, the song craft, and also the recording production. It's done in a professional studio. It's totally pro, right? We also have a band called the Beverly Crushers that is a Star Trek The Next Generation tribute band where we write songs from the perspective of Star Trek The Next Generation characters but yeah we have i have my hands in a few things now and i'm looking to start gigging again i think we're going to start playing around california a bit as well just as an amateur i have a nine to five job still but being on stage is a lot of fun so yeah did you get to see the stranger worlds musical episode i no i did not all right. Oh, I haven't. Yeah. Sorry, I haven't watched Strange New. I was okay. context switching for a second. I haven't okay. watched Strange New Worlds yet at all. Okay, they did a musical episode. Nice. And I'm uh, hearing. I'm hearing good things. I just. I'm being. I'm waiting my turn to go binge it. Yeah, I. I think I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and so I, I will definitely be checking out some of the Beverly Crushes. The and it it's set in the universe before when Pike ran the enterprise right right. um and it is very much one and done episodes they they have a little bit of arc but not as much Um, i really like it um some of the old school fans feel like they're playing a little bit of loose with the original continuity i'm like it's a tv show that lasted three years that was in the 60s let's tell me good stories and i'm okay yeah Uh, i agree with that yeah, so, and I think that the tone and the acting are more important to me. And yeah, listen, I'll admit I am not the biggest Trekkie in the world, despite what I just said. I love Next Gen and grew up with it, and I love that it's a very philosophical kind of yeah. sci-fi show. So that one really speaks to me. Picard speaks to me as a leader. <laughs> I feel like I've based my leadership career on him. Nothing but, wrong with that. But I do like the other series. I just I need to make a little more time for some of these new ones because I feel like now there's just a plethora of new stuff. I got through watching the new Picard 
yeah. stuff semi recently, and there's the cartoon one, there's Discovery. Just yeah. it feels like it's exploding again. Yeah. So this year in Strange New Worlds, they actually did a crossover with the lower deck, the animated, and that was really well done. So yeah, I'd be curious. In fact, I'm going to invite you back whenever you see the musical episode, and they actually throw in a little homage to Once More with Feelings. There is a comment that says, it could be bunnies. At least we're not bunnies. And it was just like, <laughs> we are like, we see what you're doing there. We see what you're doing there. Nice. Yeah, yeah. All right, Rob, I'm going to switch, ask you to switch caps. Sure. Um, talk about the origins of the podcast. And once again, tell me a little bit about it and why you guys decide to do it and what keeps motivating you to keep doing it. Absolutely. It was really born from the pandemic. We couldn't see each other directly. And honestly, over the years, we've scattered to the winds. We're in different parts of the country. We wanted to, an excuse to keep going with the kinds of conversations that we have around the bar, talking about whatever happens to be on the jukebox or having text strings, just nitpicking, analyzing songs. We, I think a lot of musicians have this kind of relationship with their friends. It's just fun to dive in and talk little details of what it was like to be in the booth and singing this background part. And why did they put that little glockenspiel in there, that kind of stuff. And so it was a great way to just stay in touch first and foremost and continue those types of conversations. And what we quickly realized as well was that it was a great excuse to discover new music again. So this book exists, The Thousand and One Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. We found some online representations of it. And you quickly realize that even though there's tons of classic records that you do know on there, there's a lot that I haven't heard. And even more so, as it's grown, we've gotten better at researching and telling the story behind these records. Even the stuff I know about, I always learn and gain new appreciation because a lot of the premises with context, with the story, with understanding the human beings involved and where they were at in their artistic career and what pressures they might have been under and things like that, the music gets more interesting, even the stuff that I was already familiar with. So that's really what it's about for us. And of course, we have a lot of fun. Like I said, we poke fun even at the stuff we love because I just think that means you love it all the more. Yeah, one of the... I'm part of the Pantheon network and we do all music podcasts. And one of them is the story song podcast. And that's similar. They three friends that each known there forever. And they take a story song and then break it down by lyrics, right? Brandy, you're a fine girl from looking glass, right? And they sure. just go through and are incredibly funny about it and extreme because they treat all the lyrics seriously and then they go the second segment is they actually okay what is the story about this song who was looking glass what did they do how did this song come about and it's a lot of fun nice. um, and you get to do so when i emailed you today to confirm that we were going to still visit so i pulled up your profile little behind the scenes curtain. Rob and I are both in a kind of a group that helps 
other podcast hosts find guests and help cross promotion. And so I pulled up the podcast and I go, gosh, there's a lot of these I want to listen to. Oh, I bet you that Frank Sinatra and the wee small hours would be a good one. And so I'm going, but I saw Kiss Destroyer. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, I've got to do this. So I am not a huge Kiss fan, but in high school I was. I graduated high school in 1977. I remember that Kiss Alive 8-track that that rock and roll all night i remember getting detroit the destroyer loving that eight track just adoring that eight track i think next was kiss rock and roll over but i'd never seen him live okay and then the story i tell which is a true one is in the summer of 77 i walked into a montgomery wards and saw beach boys endless summer on an eight track on sale, I picked it up and all of a sudden I'd never heard harmonies like that before (laughs) in my life. And I left Kiss and I became this massive Brian Wilson and a Beach Boy fan. Right. So a couple years ago, Kiss is coming to Fort Worth. And my buddies said, do you want to do a field trip? And I'm like, the 17-year-old Jesse has to say yes. Sure. This has got to be. And we had pretty cheap tickets. We were up in the high. There was a guy in front of me who stood the whole show. And people's like, why didn't you tell him to sit down? I said, because he was having too much fun. <laughs> I said, I could tell Kiss was Bruce Springsteen to him. Sure. He knew every lyric. He was screaming. I'm like, that's I'm not going to mess his vibe they played every song i wanted to hear and i will tell you if you took a shot every time they said if paul stanley said fort worth you would be drunk you would be alcohol boys like, hello fort worth are you ready to rock and roll fort worth we want to hear from you fort worth but there was pyroglyphics there was flying across the stage there was a fake piano with the fake peter chris doing beth And by the way, I will say in high school, the greatest thing about getting a cold was then you could sound like Peter Chris. Beth, (laughs) I hear you calling. So anyway, I loved going through your thoughts and you guys were pretty, I think, pretty fair with them. But one of the things about music is the personal connection and your history with it. I may not think this album by this band is that great, but because of the context when the album came out and when I listened to it, I'm always going to have this sense of love and affection for it, which doesn't mean you can't discuss all its flaws and its strengths, right? Of course, of course. And yeah, just to get ahead of it, we were all, I think, coming in fresh to kiss we didn't have that nostalgia for them of course it's super subjective yeah we might have been just to head off at the pass any kiss fans that might be listening or listen that episode we poked a fair amount of fun at some of the singing and some of the songs that maybe didn't work as well i think ultimately in verdict we said that they were a really great live band and that alive and alive too 
even on glancing listens for me at least, showcased them a lot better, I thought, than Destroyer. But you know what the other great thing about the podcast is? We always say the, we, it's better to take a position. If we have you yelling at your speakers, we've done our job. I'd rather you feel not neutral about our comments. To t- take a side, that's just in the name of entertainment to a certain extent. But one of the great things, and this is an example of it, is we invite people super fans of these bands who are naturally going to have more information, more context to write in and to correct us where we're wrong or give more context. So in this case, actually a fellow who was an author, published author who wrote an entire book on Kiss's Destroyer, heard our episode, wrote in correcting some things, which we then talked about on a later episode, super, super nice guy. His name's James Campion and the book's called Shout It Out Loud, I believe. Okay. Anyway, the point is, we are doing these things week over week. We have one week. We try to do intense 10 to 15 listens of the record. We try to research them. But not only is it subjective, but of course, if you live through it, you're going to know more than us. It's, it's just natural. So we invite. We're, we're here to learn, basically. So anything we can learn from the fans of these bands is great. One of my other podcasts is Perfectly Good Podcast where Sylvan Groth and I are going through every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. Oh, and nice. Yeah, and John Hyatt is not a well-known musician. And so we talk about it. We're going through, we just hit the Ds. And we will say that it is hard to, we'll give us, we'll rate them one to five, right? And we'll say this is a two or a one. And we'll say, and if this was your favorite John Hyatt song and you're screaming at us, send us an email, leave <laughs> us a voicemail, join yeah. us on the podcast to tell why Cop Party from Slugline is your favorite John Hyatt song, right? Totally. It's super yeah. subjective, It's it, of course. And what I think what we strive for on 1001 Album Complaints is to always qualify our opinions. Yeah. You can't just say it's good. You have to say why it's good. You can't just say it's bad. You have yeah. to say why you think it's bad. It's yeah. still subjective. Right. But I like those kinds of debates. And on some episodes, we are contentious with each other. In fact, I think the Bruce Springsteen episode was an example where I was playing defender against at least one other co-host. And I like that kind of thing. I like to be challenged. Yes. I like to hear other people's opinions. And I like to have it go back and forth in that way. I think that's good for fanship and art. Yeah, I think so. And I will definitely go back. I will be checking other albums to to hear some of these because I know there are a lot of people that adore Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. I thought it was fine. I didn't didn't hate it, but there's others I'm going to love. Is there an album or two you were surprised how much you liked? And then we'll also how much you went, wow, after revisiting this, I'm a little <laughs> surprised that this didn't hold up. I'll speak to a recent episode we okay. published, which was the Stooges Funhouse. Okay. I had never heard it, believe it or not. And it's considered proto-punk, and I, punk is not really a big genre for me. Okay. And so I was expecting not to love it, but actually it had a lot of vital energy, 
and just rock and roll to it that really was a pleasant surprise for me. That was a good one. Another one, a lot of times it's stuff outside of my genre. I thought the specials debut album, which we covered back on episode 102. Also another example, their ska, totally outside of my genre, had never heard them before, but it was a fun record. Stuff that doesn't live up, that's a little tougher. I'm gonna say when we went back, yeah, Purple Rain, Mm -hmm. I thought was better than when I gave it a super active listen. Yeah. I know that's a controversial one. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's the one that jumps to my mind. Okay. Yeah, that's good. You guys are, how do you pick which albums you discuss? Because I'm going through this. And you, obviously, if you go with the source, the 1001, sure. but you are, you are all over the board with just a wonderful, a huge, everything from Johnny Cash, the man comes around to the band. And yeah, you guys go all over. We haven't done those records yet, but we take a random approach. We have a complex okay. Yeah. device that we use that spits out random selections. Okay. No, we, we just choose, but we like to mix it up Okay. and have a nice mixture internally of stuff we want to learn about and maybe okay. don't know that much about yet versus stuff that we might be familiar with. And oftentimes not everyone is familiar. And because we're a group, we share the research duties. I was so, going to ask that. Do you assign, take turns? Okay, it's your turn to look at this one. This exactly. one. Okay, good. Yeah, so it's based, the reality is it's based on people's individual interests and what they want to dive into. And then they do the majority of the research. Everyone else listens and has commentary. But one person does the majority of the research and kind of leads the us through the episode and through the artist's mm-hmm. career. So it just gets a natural mix based on that. Also, that list is, it just covers a lot of ground. Yeah. Is, are you still having fun? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. They're my best friends. And I think we have, I hope it comes through on the tape that we have a lot of fun doing it. And apart from that, I love listening to music. I love discovering music. I love researching music. I'm here to learn again. And then talking about it, being able to talk about it with your friends and compare notes is just a blessing. So what's next for you, Rob? Creatively, what do you want to do next? Next, I'm trying to grow 1001 album complaints, of course. I'm working on two albums currently. A Beverly Crusher's follow-up. We released a, a record called Sick Bay back in 2020. And we have now tracked, I'd say we've, we're about 70% done a follow-up LP that I'm pretty excited about. So working on that. We have another project with our friends that where the writing prompt was Ghostbusters, the movie. And we've also tracked about 60% of that, I would say. So okay. hoping they'll release both of those in early next year. And then I just want to do more of that weird stuff. I want to yeah. write more songs. I want to get on stage more. And I want to learn. I'm still actively trying to get better at guitar and piano, which are my primary instruments, and become a better singer and a better songwriter. Nice. Nice. Rob, what have I not asked you that I should have? (laughs) I did want to get one more anecdote in there. The second time I saw Bruce Springsteen live, 
Okay. He, it's where I discovered for the first time that I was old. Okay. Because, Tell me. I love this. Yes. <laughs> because I saw him in around 2010 or 11, maybe, in San Jose at the Shark Tank at another place where a hockey team plays. And it was a great show for all the same reasons as when I had seen him in 1999. But at this point in my life, I was about 30 and he played Glory Days and the entire crowd was singing along. And I had this realization right in the middle of it. It was the first time I experienced the song from the perspective of the narrator. And it felt both poignant and upsetting to me at the same time, but it ultimately was a great experience. But I was like, oh, that's me now. I'm looking back on those glory days. I will tell you my, it wasn't at a Bruce show, but I knew when Lynn and I were getting old is Lynn and I, that's my wife. We went through a stage that we were really enjoyed the Dallas music scene, going to deep Ellum, seeing live bands, Sarah Hickman, who is, is now lives in Austin, but she was very active. Edie Brokell and the New Bohemians, just all these bands that we loved seeing. And Brave Combo is a band from Denton that are still together that do rock and roll polkas. They've actually yeah. won Grammys for polka. And so we love them, right? So they're at Club Dada. And to tell you, before we had Kid, before we had the kid, Sarah would play at Club Dada every Monday night starting at 10 p.m. And Lynn and I would get home from work, maybe eat something, take an hour and a half nap, (laughs) get up, drive to the club, stay till midnight to hear Sarah's sets, and then come work, go work the next day. Yeah. So Brave Combo was playing at Club Dada. And it was, it was, it was a great set. Just, they were wonderful. They were just rocking and doing. And, and she took a break. They took a break. And I looked at Linda and I said, this is at least a 20, 25 minute break. Yeah. We could be home (laughs) before they even start the second set. (laughs) Yeah. Let's go. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when I realized, okay, I may be a little old. You're right. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. It does. All right. If suggestions on where to start with the episodes, do you have one that you are especially proud of that you thought uh, you guys knocked it out of the park? I'm looking. There is everything from Monk to Marley to Lannis Morissette. David Bowie. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You guys have had fun. I think the show has evolved quite a bit in its run. So I definitely recommend starting more recently, sometime from episode 70 on. I I think they're all good. They all have, if I may say so, they all have some charm to them, of course. But we've, we've definitely evolved the show and gotten better. So I think it's a smart move to start with something that you're familiar with, but maybe not super familiar with, maybe not a super fan Because like I said, we're doing these week to week and we might agree with you and we might even know a lot about the band. We recently did one on the Grateful Dead American Beauty. That happens to be a record I've known for a very long time and I know the band pretty darn. So we mostly praised it as an example 
it doesn't always work that way. But if you pick something that you just want to learn a little more about, maybe hear a musician's take on, I think that's going to be the best entry point. Okay. And hopefully we'll be entertaining. We'll crack some jokes. We'll be a little snarky at times, but it's all from the perspective of true music fans because, and I hope this comes through and we try to say this on the show that we have the utmost respect for anyone out there putting their songs, putting their creativity, putting their art out to the world, making themselves vulnerable. It is no easy task. We know and yes. it, just achieving being on this list in any format, this 1001 list yeah. is a major achievement. So even though we poke fun, we have the right. utmost respect. Yeah, I will also, I will send you the link. The Story Song podcast did do Redheaded Stranger, the song. Nice. And so I'll send you, that would be a fun one for you to listen to because they they have a lot of fun with it. And then afters when they're trying to explain, they're like, okay, we aren't even going to get close to everything Willie Nelson done. All right, because I'm sure we're going to do another Willie Nelson episode. We, we're just going to scratch the surface of what guy that guy yeah, has done. Yeah, the guy's got like 85 albums or something. Yeah, and I think 15 or 20 books. Yeah, I've yeah, read a couple yeah, of them. Yeah, He's great. I yeah, love it him. is. Uh, absolutely. All right, any final thoughts before we get to the Mary question? No, uh, it's been a pleasure coming on here, talking about Bruce, talking about podcasting, and maybe just one more bone for your audience. Every time I see a karaoke mic, I'm putting Dancing in the Dark on, and I'm going to town. Nice. Very cool. You're talking about feeling glory days. My son had graduated high school, and he was in college, and he came back for a visit, and he asked... Can we drive by St. Monica's, which was where he went first through eighth grade? Yeah. It's Catholic elementary. Yeah. And so we're driving by and there's the football where he played and everything. And without him knowing, I had and I started playing Glory Days <laughs> while we were driving by the school. <laughs> and he just loved it. He said, Yep, that's me. You know what? And he was only like 19 so yeah that is sets in fast it does absolutely all right if you are a fan of rob and his podcast or his music and you're checking out this podcast thank you thank you so much he made you very proud i end every podcast with the mary question jay armstrong is an honors english teacher who's now retired but when he was teaching he would give his class the lyrics to thunder road they would study it as if it was a poem. Talk about the imagery Bruce is using, the lyrics, the choice, that what the themes he's exploring. And at the end of the class, he would ask the class, does Mary get in the car? So Rob, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Listen, I'm fully prepared to answer this question. And I want to make it clear that although I listened to some of your other interviews, I purposely didn't listen to anyone else's answer. Oh, really? Very nice. I wanted to stay fresh. So okay. I hope it's original. But let's break down Thunder Road just for a second. I can't just uh, give you a one-word answer here. And by the way, when you were talking about I want someone to yell at their thing, I'm often asked, what's the right answer? I said anything but yes or no. Correct. So, that yeah, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> you know, so this, so. I agree. This bears some analysis. So okay. let's look at the let's look at the evidence here. He's a bad boy. He's got a car. 
He's positioning himself as an anti-hero. All these things are attractive to women, especially young women. On the negative side, he does mention that he's feeling like a killer in the sun, which I don't feel is great for a date. If the guy mentions he's a killer or feeling like a little strange. The biggest thing I got to point out is that he calls her not a beauty, but hey, you're all right. He's nagging her. He's using the pickup artist playbook. However, that stuff works. And I think he sells it effectively with the last line. This town's for losers. I'm burning out of here to win. Mary is definitely getting in the car at that point. Nice. Very good. Um, I will send you. Um, I had a podcaster that had never heard Thunder Road, which I do think it's funny. I do have people that, and I'm like, how have you gone your life without hearing Thunder Road? But anyway, <laughs> yeah. and she didn't listen to the song. She just read the lyrics and she's, oh my God, he's going to kill her. If she gets in the car, he's going to die. So I will send you her notes. It's it's really funny. That's yeah, a great answer. Sure, I got one please. more bone to pick with Thunder yeah. Road. It's a musical bone. I don't know if any of your previous guests have brought this one up. Okay. But it's always stuck in my craw. Just It's a great song. Don't get me wrong. The I got this guitar and I learned how to make it talk. The thing that follows that is quite disappointing for a talking guitar lick. In fact, what actually happens at that moment is the piano heats up. I just think that's a really odd production choice. It reminds me of the Hall and Oates song, Make My Dreams Come True, where he says, listen to this. Okay. And then there's nothing happens. Okay. I just find those decisions so funny. He says, I got this guitar, I learned how to make it talk. You're expecting, you're primed for something pretty exciting to happen on that guitar. Compared to that expectation, doesn't really deliver. So that is my one complaint about the song. Okay. I think that's that's fair. I think that's something that's good. <laughs> yeah. I always bring this up because a lot of people do say that she doesn't get in the car. He calls her ugly. Hey, you ain't a beauty. Hey, you're, you're all right. And I say, and maybe because I'm a romantic, I assume that Mary has been hard on herself. Oh, I'm not that pretty. No one would want me. I'm just, I'm washed up. And so I always think that maybe that he's selling that as in, hey, you ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. But that way. So I always like to think of it that way to do the other one. Not um, coming off as the nicest guy here. I have to admit. No, it's not his, not. It's not Bruce's best look saying that, but I yeah. do think that women are a little savvier about who they choose. And if it's about getting a ride out of town or escaping this one horse town to something else, anything else, I think women pick up on that opportunity aspect of the relationship. And that's why she's getting in the car, in my opinion. Yeah, I do know that one of my person, one of my guests said that she gets in the car, but when he stops to get cigarettes, she goes, what am I doing? And gets out. <laughs> I love that. Rob, I had a blast. I hope you had a good time. It was great. Thank you so much. Very nice. All right. If someone wants to reach you, do some plugs. Yeah. So we're on Instagram. We're real active on Instagram at 1001, the number 1001 album complaints or at the chop unlimited, which is both the name of our band and our record label and our creative collective that produces the podcast. You could also go to 1001 album complaints 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com and you'll get a link tree to everything, the music, the podcast, etc. Okay. What do you got coming up? You want to give me a uh, quick thought on what maybe albums you're going to cover? What? Tell me, do you know when this is going to air and I can give oh. you a little window maybe? Good point. Probably about a month from now in September. And so if that's too far in advance, that's, we can, I can cut this out. No worries. You, how about you prompt me again and I'll just tell you what's, what we haven't published yet and okay. it'll be published by the time this comes out. All right. That sounds good. Okay. So what you got other things coming up? Yeah, we got some good episodes in the hopper. We covered the Go's debut album, Beauty and the Beat. We did a Cure record and we did the Carpenters, which was a fun one. Ooh, I cannot wait for that. The I once again as a child of the 70s, I just loved Karen Carpenter. I love the Carpenters. Such great songs and wow, what harmony. Ooh, that'll Absolutely. be a fun one. Yeah, that'll be a really fun one. Good. Most definitely. All right, listeners, thank you for hanging with us. Please go check out the podcast. If you think they are missing the boat, send them an email and tell them why, because they would love to hear it. Let me know what you think about this podcast. Rob, thank you for joining me. Listeners, be safe, be kind, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listening Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.